Good morning, everyone. If you are between ages three and first grade, you may now be dismissed for Children's Church. As the rest of us turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us do just that. Let's read it together. I will never forget your commands. They make me wiser than my enemies. Your word is a lamp for my feet, the light to my path. This morning's scripture reading is taken from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Here James insists that while good works can never pay for our salvation, they do in fact prove our salvation. Hear now the word of the Lord from James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sister, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. <clears throat> you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, what, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? What not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scriptures was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Our journey through uh, the book of James, and um, thank you, Lydia, for reading that uh, this morning. We're, this uh, this particular section of James is uh, is, a, is, a, is basically followed on, uh, following on from the, the earlier chapter, and I'll explain that in a minute. As we as we enter into this this particular passage, though, I want to I want to talk to you kids. Um, I mean, imagine for a minute that you were planning a big birthday party, okay, and your, your mom and dad, or they, they, they allowed you to invite really whomever you wanted to invite to the party. And you picked a certain theme, maybe it was Star Wars, or maybe it was, you know, whatever it might be, and you, and you, you, you got food and games already to go, and you made even invitations, and you gave out the invitation to school, to all of your friends, not only at school, but maybe at church in your neighborhood, and you said, hey, it's going to be a slumber party. Show up at 5 o'clock. And you, you, just, you were so animated, and this is a, a good three or four weeks out, and you had to wait and wait and wait. And as you gave them out, the kids were just so excited. They're like, oh, we can't wait to be there. It's going to be so great. And then several weeks go by, and as you talk about the party with everyone, who's, you know, everyone you've invited, about all the food and the games and the, and the movies you're going to watch, they respond with such enthusiasm. And then finally, finally the day of the party shows up, 
You wake up super early because you, you can barely contain yourself. You're so excited. And you, you have breakfast, and, and, and your mom, right then after breakfast, she gets a call from one of the other moms. The mom says, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, we can't make it. Um, my son has decided to go and play with someone else instead. And then a bit later, another mom calls, and she says, you know, we, we, we also won't be coming. He wants to stay home and play with a new toy that he just got. And then around lunchtime, several more moms call, and still more calls come in that afternoon, each cancellation and after cancellation, until 5 p.m. Comes, comes along, and there's all the food, there's the cake, and there's the games, but really, no kids. No kids show up. And no one really, you realize that actually in truth, no one really, no one really wanted to come at all. They were all just pretending to be interested, pretending to be on board. They were all just faking it. So when we fake it, it really hurts, doesn't it? We know people who have faked things before. They, they pretend to be interested. They pretend to be your friend. They pretend to be all in, and you realize they're actually not. Recently, someone I know, I can't remember who it was. It was a friend, uh, or perhaps it was one of you. I, I really don't remember. They were sharing how this past, um, this past hockey season, uh, I think it was the post-season the post, uh, time frame, uh, that a f- person they, they knew was actually able to get two tickets. I think it was off of eBay or Craigslist, to a Blues playoff game here in St. Louis. And they were so excited. Apparently, the, the, the persons who had originally bought the tickets, they, they weren't able to go for some crisis or some family emergency or something like that, and they were trying to sell them. And so, sure enough, they were able to get these two tickets. I think it was two tickets. I'm not sure quite how many it was. And they paid for, I think they paid for the tickets beforehand, and they met the person at the arena on the night of the game. Do you know where this is going? And, of course, as they went through the booth and scanned their tickets and all excited to go in, in, what happened? Didn't work, so they tried it again. Scan didn't work. Tried it again. Scan didn't work. The person working, the, the booth came over, examined the tickets, and informed them that they were fake. They lost hundreds of dollars. Because they were just, they were fake. See, we live in a world of fake friends world of fake tickets. We live in a world where there's a lot that is fake. It's useless, we might say. And what's so scary about this passage, and then, you know, I tremble as I think about this passage, because James is so sober, but in love, in love, he wants to talk about a fake faith. And what's so important is to see that if you're listening now, you're thinking, okay, we're going to explore this passage, just stop and say, you know what, real faith does, does, you know, at this point, you and I can do two things. We can either say, you know what, I know I've got real faith. This 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 passage is not for me. Or we can say, you know what, I really do have real faith, and I, and I'm, and I'm actually, concerned. I actually want to hear what what is this about? Because I want to know. I want to. I want to make myself sure of my faith. I want to understand the difference, the distinction between these two. I don't want to sort of think that all along I've got these tickets, the tickets in, the ticket into the new heavens, the new earth, the ticket into a life that will, there will be no more uh, dying or, or, or death or pain or hardship or sorrow. 
only to get to the entrance, only to get there to the actual booth and realize that my faith is fake. So again, our our text this morning relies on what comes immediately before it. Last week, James said that true faith forbids any form of favoritism. Rather, true faith makes friends with the forgotten. Now, why does it do that? Because true faith puts on, listen to this, true faith puts us on an agenda of mercy. Look back to verses 12 and 13. Look back to verses 12 and 13. It says there, speak, James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is saying that true faith aligns itself with a law that is about one thing, mercy. It's about mercy. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, it's astonishing. It's so wondrous. That is to say, true faith actually says, you know what? I have been shown so much mercy, and now I want to go and show mercy. And that that showing of mercy is what manifests itself in a life of works, that is, works of mercy. Remember the summary of the law that we do almost every Sunday? What is the law about? It's about one thing. Love. Love of God and love of neighbor. And when we think about the law, I don't know, how do you think when you think about the law? You go, oh, law, man. it's boring. It's just, you know, it's the fine print. It's just kind of, ugh. Listen, the law is all about love. And if we find the law boring, it's because we find love boring. If we find the law to be laborious, it's because we think that love is laborious. The law isn't fine print. It's not just the catch. Well, you're in, so now you got to do this. The law, says, says James, is a law about mercy, and mercy is beautiful. You know, the law is not simply there to condemn. That's one of the things that law does. The law convicts us of sin. That's, the, that's one of the purposes of the law. It's there to convict us of, of, of sin. But second, the law is not only there to convict us. The law is to be for us a curb. It curbs injustice in our world. It curbs, it's there to say, it's there to provide boundaries and say, don't go there. It's there to say to those who, would, those who are uh, criminals, those who are convicts, to say, no, stop, you cannot do this. This is wrong. So first, the law convicts. Second, the law curbs injustice. But third, and this is what's so important, this is what James wants us, to, wants us to see this morning, that the law is a coach. It's a life coach. The law is there to lead you into what is beautiful, The law is there to keep us from doing, to looking back at our lives with regret. The law is there to make us on board, on board the agenda of the one who is mercy. So with that, with that, that in fact, I, just to think of it this way, the law is like the creator's blueprint. Or if you've been reading uh, Keller's devotion, uh, devotional every day on the February 1st, he, he says this, this beautiful line. He says, because the Bible is the word of our creator, it is, our soul's, it is our soul's owner's manual. Isn't that wonderful? The things it commands are the very things we are created to do. 
So godly wisdom comes from relating to God, not just as a general divine being out there, but from relating to God as our creator. And then he asked the question at the end, he says, how can thinking of the Bible as your owner's manual help you better accept and use it in your life? Now, who of you buys something and neglects the owner's manual? You buy a brand new car, you don't even bother to re-up on it and figure out how it works, when it needs maintenance. You buy a new cell phone, you don't bother to read about all the different features and apps that it has. You just, you know, I got this, I'll figure it out on my own. We don't use the owner's manual. And, and to not read scriptures is to neglect the wisdom of the one who made us and who knows us. And so this very idea of true faith aligning itself with the law, aligning itself with the creator, finding, coming into their own. It is a law of freedom, a law of mercy, and a law of love. That is to say, true faith is, it has a fruitfulness to it. And here in James, we see how that, that fruitlessness reveals a faith that is fake. So let's look at this passage together. First, James shows us that true faith serves those who struggle. True faith serves those who struggle. Look at verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? So he's talking about just, is it, what's, the, what's the point? There's a fruitlessness to that. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. See, true faith is there to serve. It serves those who struggle. And the reason it serves those who struggle is so that it can be seen. It's a, it's a faith that can be seen or shown. Again, look at, look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. So show me, James says in response, show me your faith without deeds. You can't. And I will show you my faith by my deeds. So again, a true faith is a faith that serves those who are struggling. It serves those who are struggling. It, 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 enters in, it enters in unafraid and actually takes action, and it, it embraces an agenda of mercy. So again, true faith serves those who struggle so that it can be seen, but also true faith sides with the one who's sovereign. Now, this is so important. We all know that true faith is supposed to serve those who struggle. That's not hard. Well, yeah, faith, mercy, I got it. But why don't we do that? We all know it. Why don't we do it? Why do we see those in need, those who are hurting, and just think, ah, not for me? Why do we look over in the congregation, see those who are, who are going through difficult times, who are hardships, and think, I think I'll keep my distance? Because I do that. Do you know why? Because we, we have not sided with the one who is sovereign. Look at verse 18. I love this verse. This verse is so powerful to me. I'm sorry, verse 19. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, in this simple word, one God, there is one God, that there, there, this is the very fountainhead of Christian and Jewish faith, is the idea that there is one God. In Deuteronomy 6, we find what's called the Shema. And the Shema, the word Shema is, the, is a Hebrew term. It means simply hear. 
And it begins, it's the beginning of, of the Shema. It begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I mean, well, what does that mean? Well, to the to Jewish faith, to ancient Jewish uh, Israelite faith, the notion that there was only one God is a way of capturing that there is only one in authority. There is only one in control. There are no competing gods. There's not this multiple bosses that you have to please. There is one who is in charge of everything. And that one who is in control in Deuteronomy 6 is the one who has made a covenant with the people of God. That he is one who is in control, who is sovereign. And not only is he sovereign and in control, but he is committed. He is committed to his people. And not only is he committed to them, he cares for them. And all of that is captured in this one idea of, of just the oneness of God. It speaks that there are no other competitors. There's no need to sort of, uh, to sort of uh, hedge your bets. You can go all in with the one God because there's only one who's in control. And the one who's in control is committed and he's caring. See, real faith, real faith, is a deep and abiding conviction that there is one who is in control. And that there is one who cares. And there's one who's committed to me. And it is only, it is only when I actually embrace that with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind that I am freed to pursue, to serve those who are struggling, to lose control, Guys, this is so important. This is right where Good Shepherd is. True faith is actually a faith that loses control. It says, you know, I don't know how this is going to work out. I'm going to enter into the lives of others serving them, not knowing what's going to happen. I'm going to give my time, my energy, my money in ways that I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. It is the surrendering of control. It is not, no, no, okay, I got all this figured out, and I'm going to be okay no matter what happens. I got enough money in my account. I, got enough, I can keep enough distance from the person hurting that I'll be okay. They're not going to tell me. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, so like, think, think of someone, think of a, a, a drowning swimmer. Think about going to help, swimming out to a drowning swimmer, how dangerous that is. What's, a drowning, what's the very first thing a drowning swimmer does when, they come, when, they, when you come near to them? They grab right a hold of you, and they'll actually climb, climb up on you and drag you under. That's why actually a lot of uh, those who are trained in, especially those in the, in the military or the Coast Guard, when they're, they're trained when they actually have a drowning swimmer. Sometimes even they, they'll even go to the extent of actually knocking the person out, the drowning person out, in order to, to subdue them. It's dangerous helping people. It requires loss of control. And James is sa- saying that true faith here is not merely a consent that there is one who's in control. I bet there's no one here who doubts that. Oh yeah, God is one. This is a standard Jewish line. That just says verse 19. You believe, you consent that there is one God. Listen to what he says, good. Even the demons believe that. They know who they're up against. And then they shudder. It is not mere consent, gang. It is the deep conviction a conviction that says, you know what? He's in control. He cares for me. He's going to provide for me. 
He's committed to me. He's never gonna, he's never gonna, he's never gonna leave me or forsake me. And therefore, I am going to rush in and seemingly, in a, in a way that the world looks at and says, you know, that's irresponsible. I am going to rush headlong into helping others, into serving those who are struggling, instead of just saying, oh, I'm sorry, be warm and well fed. You know, there are lots of things that are really ugly when they're counterfeit and fake. There's nothing uglier than a counterfeit Christian. A Christian who shows up on Sunday morning, talks the talk, knows the lingo, sounds great, and yet is absolutely terrified of letting go of the control of their lives. Because they're so convinced that they know better than God. And here's the thing, gang, you're missing out. When you surrender in faith to God, when you actually say, he is in control, he cares for me more than I care for myself. He is committed to me. When we actually say that and we, and we jump off the ledge, you will know a peace. You will know a freedom. You will know a provision that you just didn't think possible. And I say that from experience. So you're missing out. You're missing out. You know, don't get me wrong. Some of you, it's so beautiful to see some of you. I mean, as I have walked with you through difficult times and I've said, well, here's the cliff. It's time to lose control. It's time to begin to really trust. You see, you gulped and you just kind of, palms get all sweaty. And you said, okay. And you've jumped. It's been amazing to see. It's been so beautiful. See God work in your faith in the midst of conflict. God work in your, in, in God strengthen your faith in the midst of, of loss, in the, in, in the midst of hard times and uncertainty. It's so beautiful to see. So again, true faith serves those who struggle. Why? Because it sides with the one who is sovereign. It doesn't really say that there's one God. It actually embraces this beautiful idea that there is one who is sovereign who truly cares for me. And it's, he's, and this, this is so beautiful. James actually sets up a contrast. Look in verses 20 through 25. She, she said, the true faith, it sides with the one who's sovereign. That's verse 19. It says, there is one God. But then, then, then James, James goes after. He says, do you really want to know? Look at verse 20. He says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without works, that faith without deeds is useless? And he speaks of two persons from the Old Testament whose faith, the first one has a faith that is deeply counterintuitive. It confronts the self. It sides not with self, but with the sovereign one. And the second person is one that is deeply countercultural. It's a faith that sides not with society, but again with the one who is sovereign. The first example is of Abraham, verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac? on the altar. See, James takes us to a passage that is probably one of the most well-known passages within ancient Judaism, the past, Genesis 22, where Abraham, after coming to the climax of all that he's been waiting for, finally, after years of infertility, Sarah finally has a son. And God asks him in ways that make no sense whatsoever. It seems so cruel. It seems so capricious. Abraham, arise, go to the land I will show you, to the mountain there, and, and offer your son as a sacrifice. Oh, 
See, there are things that you and I face right now in our lives that seem so counterintuitive. What in the world are you taking from me, God? How dare you take that from me? I don't understand it. It seems cruel of you. It seems capricious of you. It seems just, it makes no sense. Every fiber of my being is pushing against this. And you're asking me to do that. And James says that true faith sides with the one who's sovereign, who's in control, who cares about you who's committed to you over and against yourself. Every emotion, every feeling, every ounce of your body that says no. And why? Is God capricious? Is he caring? No, it is in the way you read the rest of the story. It is so beautiful. How Abraham goes to raise his knife to slaughter his son, and the angel of the Lord says, stop. Stop, now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you listen to me. Now I know that you hear me first. And he blesses, he blesses Abraham so richly. Listen, on the other side, on the other side of that act of faith, it says, God, in spite of every fiber of my being that says the opposite, I will do what you say. I trust you. On the other side of that is a freedom and a blessing That is just breathtaking. I know it because I've done it. In fact, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 is marked by person after person who has denied self and sided with the one who is sovereign. But it's not only the self that that faith denies. Faith also denies society around it. Look in verse verse 25. In the same way, we, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Here's this woman, this is from Joshua chapter 2, whereas Abraham is the ultimate insider. He is the Jew of Jews. He's where it all started. He is the one that all the Jews revered. Rahab was a woman, a prostitute, a Canaanite, the ultimate outsider. And James points to her and he says, do you see what she does? All around her, she's living in Jericho. She's, she's, she's there and everyone's trembling because Israel's coming into the land about to take over. And she, she, she sees the spies, somehow identifies them. And she harbors them, which would have been an act of treason. So countercultural. She goes against everything that her culture, her society believes, and she joins with the dark side. That's what faith does. Faith defies a, a corrupt, unjust society around it, and it sides with the one who is sovereign, the one who is all about mercy, the one who is all about love, the one who is all about true justice, the one who is in control. In fact, you look back in Joshua 2, you see Rahab's declaration of of Yahweh's sovereignty. It's so awesome. She says, everyone here in Canaan, we're all trembling with fear. We've heard about how your God, what he did in Egypt with the 10 plagues. We heard about what 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 your God did at the Red Sea, how he decimated the the Egyptian army. We have heard that your God is sovereign. And she says, I for one am bowing my knee because he's in control because he cares, because he's committed. And she said, will you show me kindness when you, when you conquer the land? And she and the spies make a pact that sure enough, it saves her and her whole family. 
What is true faith, brothers and sisters? True faith is one that serves the struggling. It can be seen. You can demonstrate it. In fact, I've wondered sometimes if James is, is, is actually from Missouri, right? For this is the show me state, right? And he says, show me your faith. Show me. And he says, how do you do it? Because you're serving those who are struggling. And why? What is it that enables, that frees us to actually enter into the lives of others, to crawl under the rock with others, to enter into their hardship, into the, the mess and the chaos of their lives? It's because we have sided with one who is sovereign, the one who is in control, the one who cares about us and is committed with us. We've abandoned ourselves. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to lean on my understanding here. I am not going to trust my society, whatever, uh, whatever Oprah says, whatever Dr. Phil says. They are not the ones who have wisdom. They have not made me. They do not, they do not know me inside and out. So true faith is one that serves those who struggle and sides with the one who's sovereign over and against self and society. Let me just close with this story. A number of years ago when uh, President Bill Clinton was in office, um, there was a national, um, I think it was a prayer breakfast, and they invited Mother Teresa to speak at, at the breakfast. And she got up, and Mother Teresa was Mother Teresa. She got up and she expressed her views about abortion. She condemned much, many of the things of, of, of American policy at the time. And, and then she got back and sat down. And it was one of the most awkward breakfasts you could ever imagine. And so and some, some, some press figures asked Bill Clinton afterward. They said, what do you think about that, this Catholic nun? And you know what Clinton said? He said, what can you say against a life so well lived? What can you say against a life so well lived? Listen, all the apologetic arguments in the world all of the cool programs in the world. Those are all, those all have their place. But do you know what will make the world stop? Do you know what will make, make the world stop and say, you know, that's beautiful. That's breathtaking. Is when you and I embrace a faith, a true faith, it says there is one God. There is one who is sovereign. He is in control in the details of my life. He's in control over my body, over my health. He has numbered my days. He's controlling control over my bank account. He will provide for me. He will provide. He's in control of my family. I, I can trust my children to him. I can trust my marriage to him. I can trust him with these. I can give myself over to him and say, you know, I just... I look at me, look at, look at my own abilities. I am so foolish, I'm so fair-weathered. I don't want to be in control anymore. All I do is sabotage things again and again and again. I'm gladly, I'm gladly giving him the reins. I'm gladly looking at Jesus and saying, you get in the driver's seat. You know exactly what you're doing. A faith that loses control to the one who actually is in control anyway. And says, you know what, you care about me. You do. You care about me more than you care about my. I care about myself. And you're committed. You're not going anywhere. You're going to stick with me through thick and thin. You will never leave me or forsake me. And in so doing is free to serve those who are struggling. To even love their enemies. What can one say against a life so well lived? But of course, Mother Teresa's life, as remarkable as it was, 
pales in comparison to the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear this. It's the last thing I want you to hear this morning. Do you know who went before us in faith? Do you know who most lost control? Do you know the one who was most convinced that there was one who cared for him and was committed to him? It was our Lord Jesus Christ. He too in his humanity exercised a faith no different from the one that God is calling, that James is calling us here to give. He goes before us into loss. 1 Peter 2 says it so beautifully. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, falsely accused, utterly humiliated, abandoned by his followers. Jesus alone trusted. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This morning, let me ask you, are there certain things, that, certain aspects of your life, certain hardships, certain struggles, where you need to say, I entrust this to you. I'm not going to wait to understand. I'm not going to wait till I have enough money. I'm not going to wait till I've, I have got some, some certain pr- criteria before I actually start serving you. If you do, you'll know a freedom, a peace, a provision. You'll say, this is what you will say. You'll say, why did I not do this sooner? James isn't calling us to the fine print. Well, you got to do works. He's calling us to a life of love, of nobility, of dignity, of beauty, a life that is so well worth living. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and glory for the, just the, the candor, the confrontation that James has, the ways in which he is calling us to something that is truly life, not a faith that is empty, a faith that is dead, but a faith that is living and full and abundant and beautiful, a faith that drops jaws, a faith that turns heads, a faith that is a faith that rejects the wickedness of a society around it, a faith that denies the primacy of our personal momentary feelings. Father, would you lead us by the power of your Spirit to a faith that says no to self, that says no to society, and says yes to the one who is sovereign. Thank you, Jesus, that you have gone before us, that you have shown us what sacrifice is, that you are the one who indeed has supremely served those who are struggling. Father, apart from you, we have nothing. But with you, if you are with us, if you are for us, who can be against us? Father, we love you. Jesus, you have gone before us. Spirit, you dwell within us. And we we call you, we hail you, Jesus, as our wonderful, merciful Savior. It is in your name that we pray all of these things. Amen.